Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Guys, on today's episode, we're going to give you a fantastic live stream that we just did this Friday. Very important listening. Hope you enjoy. Guys, we're super excited to host this live stream and conversation. Maybe we'll call it a debate. I'm not sure. I think it'll be very conversational between Sam Bankman-Fried, that's SBF, and Eric Voorhees. The topic today is crypto regulation. David, I found myself playing a somewhat minor role in a conversation that happened on crypto over the last week, I guess, all of this happened. SBF was the originator of a post just his thoughts, his solutions on how crypto should be regulated. And the crypto community had a great deal of response to this post. I think leading one corner of the internet was Eric Voorhees and kind of giving an ethos-backed crypto OG type take to what Sam Bankman-Fried has said. And I know, David, that the best place to have a long-form discourse about this is not on Twitter, <laughs> not in you know the character limitations, but in a podcast form. So that is what we are in for today. We're having this conversation about Sam's thoughts on crypto regulation, particularly areas like DeFi, versus contrasting with Eric Voorhees' thoughts. And we might find that we land somewhere in the middle. Any other thoughts going to this episode? I think the two guests here, Sam and Eric, are great two ends of different spectrums, I think, to bring to the table here. Sam, of course, is the founder CEO of this gargantuan exchange, FTX, which has rose out of 2021 and into 2022, and is really just a huge just innovator and leader in this space. And also Eric Voorhees, this crypto also builder, been around since the get-go, this kind of crypto philosopher builder person who also has very strong principles around how crypto should be approached and regulated, both internally as an industry, as a community, but also from external regulation as well. So two different perspectives, I think, going to come to the table and we're going to find what do we want as a community, as an industry? How do we want to approach regulation? How much do we want to go out and seek regulation versus how much do we want to do some self-regulation? And so I think these are the various perspectives that we're going to bring to the table here today. That's exactly the conversation I was hoping for. You guys are in for a treat. We'll be right back with Sam Bankman-Fried and Eric Voorhees. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. The Brave Wallet is your secure, multi-chain on-ramp into Web3, and it's built directly into the Brave privacy browser. Gone are the days of managing multiple wallet extensions that put you at risk of phishing, spoofs, and tracking. With the Brave Wallet, you can securely manage your crypto assets across more than 100 different chains, including Ethereum, Layer 2s, Solana, and more, all without downloading risky extensions. The Brave Wallet is easy to set up and removes the headache of jumping between wallets and extensions. It's lightweight, but packed with great features like built-in token swaps, buying and holding NFTs with a gallery view, and support for hardware wallets. 
but also much more than that, because Brave is shipping new features every single month, with a mission to make Web3 easier to navigate for its over 55 million users. Wallet extensions are a thing of the past, so get started with Brave's Web3 Ready browser today and experience a decentralized web seamlessly without all the clutter. You can download the browser at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. If you've been listening to Bankless, you know that we're fans of the modular blockchain thesis. The idea that blockchains will separate execution from data availability and consensus, allowing all three to become the best versions of themselves. And Fuel has built the fastest modular execution layer in the industry. By supporting parallel transaction execution, Fuel unlocks significantly faster throughput for the web-free world. Fuel also goes beyond the limitations of the EVM with its own Fuel VM which is more efficient and optimized, opening up the design space for developers. And lastly, Fuel brings a powerful developer experience with its own domain-specific language, Sway, and a supportive toolchain called Fork. With Fuel, you can have the benefits of smart contract languages like Solidity while adopting the improvements made by the Rust tooling ecosystem, letting the Fuel development environment go beyond the limitations of the EVM. If you want to learn more, there's a link in the show notes to see how you can get involved with the Fuel network. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest. Both of them have been on the Bankless podcast before. I want to introduce you to SBF. He is the founder and CEO of FTX. Of course, this is a behemoth crypto financial institution and exchange uh, rose to prominence in the last bull market, but has been here for a while. And he has thoughts on crypto regulation that we're going to discuss today. SBF, Sam, welcome to Bankless. How are you doing? doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I've been waiting all week for this conversation. I brought my glasses <laughs> to the conversation. I hope you'll forgive me for the elitist of vibes I'm dropping. I'm going to wait to see what Eric says, and then I'll figure out my, my <laughs> glasses. It's, I'm going to make sure to balance it out a little. We're going to need That's some fair. context That's here. fair. <laughs> That's fair. Also, Eric Voorhees, of course, you've heard him on the Bankless podcast before. He's a crypto OG. He's a what I'd call a crypto libertarian philosopher. He's a builder and a thinker. He's built an exchange himself as well via Shapeshift and brings a ton of perspective to this conversation. The reason we're having both of you on is because SBF wrote a fantastic open starter to the conversation, what he thinks, what he thinks crypto regulation should look like. And Eric, you had a fantastic response. Eric, thank you for coming on Bankless. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Don't mind the glasses, but what I really hate about you is that bookshelf in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you hate the bookshelf? Do you not like books? Is this part of the just, Neanderthal coming out, Eric? No, it just reeks of elitism. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Okay, okay. we but, pause for a moment since we did our way into these references for the people that yes. aren't understanding these glasses and elitist references, what Go. is going on? Oh, you Tell want me to do this? Okay. I don't uh, want to talk about it anymore. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> A YouTuber was going off against Ryan, the YouTuber's BitBoy, and Ryan called him out and saying, BitBoy doesn't represent us, which triggered BitBoy, and BitBoy made a very large rant about Ryan and his glasses and his overall elitist vibes. And so that was the joke leading into the intro of the show. It's kind of funny. I actually think everyone watching has probably already seen that video. Yeah, you might be, you might many be right, on the internet actually, have. Yeah. No, I got relatives like texting, like, who is this guy? Really? What? This dude with Alex Jones vibes, what is he talking about? And I'm like, eh, just another week. Speaking crypto. That's how Anyways, it goes. Moving on. Hopefully, we never have to invoke BitBoy yet again on this live stream, but now that that's past us. All right. So great to have you both on Bankless. We're going to get into it. Uh, long form discussion on this topic. I think uh, the crypto community really wants it. We have some sections to this conversation, but before we kind of get into the sections and the high level here, I think the big meta question is this that we have to answer for folks the question of should crypto be regulated? Should it be regulated? I think this is an important topic. 
topic to start with and important question that will set the context for everything else. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, so I think I have two answers to that question. And the first is parts of it should and parts of it shouldn't. And really, you know, there's sort of my core take is roughly speaking that one axis you can talk about is how regulated crypto should be. And a second axis you can talk about is basically how thoughtful are we about which parts of it are more regulated and which parts are less. And that it's that second axis that I think I care about the most. And maybe to drill into that a little bit more, you know, if you're looking at a stable coin, right, and you're thinking, should it be regulated? I kind of think, well, it's important that there's like oversight of these holdings. If it's a one-to-one USD-backed stable coin, or so it claims, there should be something proving that it is one-to-one backed. And I'm sort of in favor of like really thorough regulation, confirming that the number of dollars in the bank account is at least as many as the number of tokens there. Like, you know, maybe you have multiple auditors who have to audit it. It's not a hard thing to audit. It's not that expensive like to do. And so like going kind of deep into like ensuring that from a regulatory point of view, I think makes a ton of sense. It's like very regulated for like that piece of it. But then you can say like, you're going to 7-Eleven to buy a bagel and like, you know, you want to pay with a stable coin. Like, is there a broker dealer that has to be involved? I think like absolutely not. And it's like very important that we not require a broker dealer to buy a bagel that would just completely kill commerce. And so, you know, I guess my core thought roughly is like, we should be really thoughtful about where the regulation comes in and what it does. The second thing I'll say is that independent of what you think of this, at least in some ways it will be regulated, at least in the United States. And so it's not a question, I think like, practically of whether there will be any regulation at all. There will be. It's a question of what should that look like and which parts should and shouldn't have which types of regulation. So Sam, your general position is that regulation's coming no matter what. We should get ahead of it. And if we get ahead of it, we can kind of define and steer it in ways where the ball's in our court, where we have more say if we kind of get ahead of it and we can kind of like focus that regulation into areas that are easy wins, easy things that we are willing to compromise as an industry, perhaps like on crypto dollars and the level of degree of audits in the bank. And that can redirect some regulation away from other parts of the industry where we want full control over like our DeFi apps and our nodes. Is that a fair summary? I think that that's mostly a fair summary. I I think I would frame it very slightly differently because I think some of this regulation is definitively good. Uh, like personally, I think that. And I think that it, it's not just a compromise, but some pieces of this I think are, are just healthy. But I think that even if you didn't think that, then I would say the thing that you said. And would you say that if we want to you know, put the listeners and ourselves into the shoes of SBF as he was writing this blog post, which was the start of this whole conversation, yeah. is that the motivation behind this blog post or is there other motivations as well? Oh, I think that's basically right. And I think that like, you know, maybe just a little bit more context on that is that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about a possible upcoming bill coming out of the Senate Ag Committee, you know, Stabenow Boozman bill, DCCPA. And I think that like, you know, I want to give some context behind my thoughts on it, which is cautiously optimistic, basically, and depends on the exact language. But like, I'm optimistic that it will end up striking a balance where it will do a good job of like, providing like a large ratio of customer protection to restriction of commerce, basically. 
So guys, one thing I will say about this conversation, I think the scope of this conversation is probably mostly relating to Sam, your initial post, and then Eric's reply and the conversation that ensued. I would like to talk about this new piece of legislation a little bit towards the end, the DCCPA, but it's important for listeners to know we don't actually have a finalized draft version of this in the public. And so, you know, your post is maybe tangentially tied to that, Sam, but that does not represent the position that we're going to find in a draft of the DCCPA. Is that correct? Well, right. A, I'm not writing the bill, and so who knows yes. what will be in it, and it's you know it's not mine. But also, it doesn't necessarily represent my view of the DCCPA. It might, it, it might not, because I, we don't know exactly what it will end up saying. And you know, we're going to have to wait to see you know what finalized text if it looks like before I will have a confident position on it. So we'll have to treat that as kind of a separate conversation that we'll maybe weave in at the end. But Eric, let's go back to this high-level meta question. Same to you. You've heard Sam's response to this. Should crypto be regulated? Uh, What a question. So I guess first let's consider that like Sam's proposal that a stablecoin itself should be regulated at least such that a provider has to prove that it has reserves for the tokens would be a higher bar than the Federal Reserve itself already applies, right? Mm-hmm. The Federal Reserve does not prove anything inside it with any degree of auditability or attestability. Banks do not need to approve anything about what they do in any way that is cryptographically verifiable. Us in the crypto industry already have a higher standard of what constitutes knowledge, what constitutes proof. And so it is a little ironic for people from the traditional financial world imposing on us the need to be proving anything, right? We're the ones that prove it cryptographically. So on the point of like whether crypto should be regulated, it's also important to consider that it already is. Crypto is heavily regulated. I know Sam would agree with that. It's been regulated ever since the very beginning. It falls under all sorts of laws in all sorts of jurisdictions. And we dispense with this myth that it's like some void of regulation. I wish that were true. That that would be my my panacea, but it's not. It is encumbered already. Third, I guess I'll say that we have a highly regulated financial system and we've seen where that status quo has gone. I think we in the industry should step back and ask ourselves, do we want the crypto financial ecosystem to move closer to the traditional financial world? Are we here because we love how that world looks and we want to make crypto resemble that world more? Or are we here because we're trying to build something better? And if it's the latter, I think we need to consider that the regulations are a huge part of why traditional finance has gone where it is now. So I'll leave it there for now. So Eric, just a, you know, I guess maybe a point of clarification. Do you agree with Sam's position that, you know, we don't live in a panacea and so whether we'd like it or not, it's going to be regulated. Indeed, you've said it already is. And so what we want is the least worst possible outcome. And that's essentially what we would be fighting for. And then I guess maybe a kind of a second question. Well, actually just take that. So what about we don't live in a panacea and so we should actually be fighting for the least worst regulation possible. What do you think of that? Let's not set our standard to be the, the least worst option. This is how the entire current political system works, where everyone's basically just voting on who's the least bad. Let's have a higher standard than that. Let's, let's practice some, some ideals, such as open finance, freedom, liberty, equality, immutability, and actually seek to achieve those things. Speak positively to those principles rather than simply playing defense and trying to 
get the least worst bad outcome onto the industry. So I think that perspective is important. It's difficult to know to what degree to engage with these regulators. They will engage with us for sure, right? That's what they do. All they see is things to be regulated. And then we have this immutable system, which does not respond to human diktat. And then there is us in the middle who are the people that use these systems, which do respond to these things. And we can all make decisions on to what degree we want to you know, bring the clause of regulation onto the crypto world or not. But I think first and foremost, we need to be remembering the principles of why this stuff exists in the first place. How about this concept I want to run by you? If uh, to the extent what you're saying is true is like, you know, cryptographically verified and does not require trust, maybe people could accept, regulators themselves could accept that there's less degree of regulation necessary because we have cryptographic guarantees. But to the extent that we have a centralizing actor in the middle, so take the example Sam was mentioning earlier, where we have a stable coin, and that stable coin is not cryptographically verifying that the amount of assets that back that stable coin is inside of a bank account. You actually have to do like atomic meat space level audits in order to get that. Where there is centralization, there should be regulation. Where there's decentralization, there is less need for regulation. Is that an axis that this conversation turns on for you as well? Yeah, I think that's a fair perspective. If you want to argue for regulation, I think it's more reasonable that the regulation should apply on people and centralized intermediaries, which do not execute programmatically. Like much of the fundamental rationale for regulation is to try to ensure that humans behave in certain ways. When it comes to DeFi, when it comes to code, when it comes to these blockchains, we don't need to ensure anything. They just operate according to the code. And I would love to hear any regulator even acknowledge like what's been built here. It's hard to take them seriously when they can't even look at these machines of immutable finance and like applaud what has been built. I think they're completely missing the virtues that we've already built, the consumer protections that have already been created just through the market. And I would be able to take them a lot more seriously if they could at least acknowledge those things. So I, I agree with some things that you said, and I totally agree with that last point. I mean, I think it's really valuable to have discourse where each side tries to argue the other side's point in general. I think like if you can't successfully or at least plausibly argue for the other side, then you don't understand the other side's arguments. And there's a worry that you're discounting them. And so I would love to see a lot of crypto libertarians argue for regulation against regulators who are arguing for the value of decentralized finance. I think that'd be like really fascinating to watch and a cool exercise. One thing that I will say, which I do honestly believe, is that, and I want to make sure I don't overstate this comment, but that some there do exist some regulators who I do think appreciate what crypto has brought and what crypto can provide. I don't want to overstate that. I don't want to claim that there are a very large number of them. I don't want to claim that this is like most, but there are some. And frankly, I think some of them maybe could talk more publicly about this as well. I've had conversations with regulators where they talk about what they're excited about crypto bringing to the world. Again, I don't want to overstate this. I would be happy if there's a lot more of that and if a lot more of them did. But but I do think it's not none of them that do. But to your point, like I think it'd be really valuable if we were in a world where there are more pushing, you know, for these advantages. And frankly, in other countries, you see this more frequently, right? Like I think we're sort of both implicitly talking about the United States when we talk about regulators, or maybe the United States and Western Europe or something. And I definitely fall into that trap of sometimes just like 
just sort of like implying that, not even like remembering to say that that is true, but that is often going to be true here. That like I will default to talking about Western regulators and definitely call me out on that. If you know when there are situations where that's not relevant or where there's like really important distinctions that that should be made. But I do think it's worth noting that in other countries, you know, we have seen, I'm in the Bahamas right now, I'm sitting in Nassau, and we've heard a lot from the regulators and the you know, politicians in the Bahamas about the potential values of crypto. So, you know, that does happen in some places. I wish it happened a lot more in the United States. Another thing I want to say is I completely agree with you, as you suspected, that crypto is not unregulated. We actually looked recently, we tried to figure out how regulated we are compared to other companies. And I'm sure we missed a lot. So I want to caveat this with like, don't take this as literal. We missed a ton. As far as we could tell, we could find one other company in the world that was more regulated than us, that had like <laughs> more regulated. Wait, we, you're not we, talking about just finance, Sam. You're talking about like across uh, all industries. Well, yeah. Although like, I'm sure we missed non-financial ones because I'm sure implicitly we did a good job of thinking of the financial ones and a really bad job. Like healthcare, I'm going to be honest, I like don't know that much about international healthcare regulation. So we just missed a lot of this. And the trees okay. business is mostly finance, specific, but, okay. but not crypto specific. Like, you know, we looked at like, like, I don't know, we're regulated, it's not just that we're regulated by like 50 state regulators and also like five federal regulators in the United States. We're also regulated by like 200 countries and each basically independently. So it's definitely not an unregulated industry. It's maybe an industry where the regulation has a really high ratio of like sort of inhibiting commerce to protecting customers relative to other industries. Like I think just because it hasn't gotten to a thoughtful point. And I agree, this is just a dumb narrative that we hear sometimes and it's just wrong and it's frustrating to hear. And a sort of similar one, I don't know, we sometimes hear narratives around like, you know, like the easy regulators, they're just, they're just wrong. I don't know. Like it's CFTC is like one of the most thorough regulators I've ever seen. And like, you can look at the enforcement action saying, bring, you can look at like, the diligence done on applications, it's sort of like an outlier in the strong direction. To your point, Eric, about the Fed and about banks and about like, hey, like, is this actually commensurate oversight or are we actually going in the opposite direction here? First of all, I think it's a good point. And I think that there are ways in which there is more transparency required here than of some other things. I think part of my answer is, well, it might be cool to see that transparency in other things, right? Like it might, like one thing you'd imagine is if you tokenize the dollar fully tokenized it, right? And then when you looked at like you had a bank, right? And it was borrowing lending effectively. If there's all going on on chain, it would be transparent to everyone, like how levered it was, right? It'd be transparent to everyone, like what the actual net borrowing was, what the net lending was, right? You could see transparently what the Fed's balance sheet was. I think that actually be kind of cool. And I think that like, you know, bringing some of that to other industries, I'd kind of be in favor of that. I do think that like they are though heavily regulated in some ways, although there isn't necessarily public transparency around that. So can I jump in for a second? Yeah, totally. So that last point you made is important. The traditional financial world is heavily regulated, as everyone knows. And how transparent do we feel they are, right? Do we feel that the banking system is a bastion of transparency? No. No one would ever say that with a straight face. And from time to time, that has actually caused like horrible financial calamities. So why is it that we, as the crypto industry, are being burdened with additional requirements for transparency when we're already more transparent and when the entire stack of TradFi financial regulations hasn't itself created anything that is transparent? Well, I think we're more transparent in some ways and not in others. And I think that 
that points to where I would like to see more and less regulation. Now, obviously, there's a worry that that won't map onto where it is. But as an example, right, DeFi borrow lending protocols are in some meaningful ways already more transparent and trustworthy than non-crypto related borrow lending is because it's all on chain. You can transparently see exactly what's going on. And, you know, you didn't get that in traditional finance anyway. And so that I think like, I totally agree. I think that, you know, you look at like, at, you know, comparing, for instance, Celsius to a broker dealer that has some borrow lending activity. And there, I think you actually see Celsius being less regulated today, or at least less effectively regulated. There are many regulations that are sort of ensnaring it to some extent, but not as much sort of effective oversight of what it's doing. So I think there's like some in each direction. And I guess part of my sense is just like the details matter. Like, I don't know, I kind of feel differently in different areas here, depending on like exactly what is happening, exactly what is regulated, exactly what isn't, and you know, what the impacts of each would be. Eric, I've got a comment for you. I'd, I'd like to get your brain to spin some wheels on, which is I totally, as like a crypto believer, understand the value of regulation by the EVM. The EVM is what regulates us. That's the point. That's why we're here. That's the cool thing about that. I'll take Sam's point that regulators don't get that and getting them to understand that is going to be an uphill battle that's going to feel like pushing a boulder uphill over and over and over again. And then there's this other line that I've heard before that is like a common trope that like in the world of politics, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so Yes, philosophically, 100% agree. Like the EVM is what regulates us. Smart contracts are cool. That's why we're all here. But I think Sam's point is that like regulators aren't just going to care and they're just going to eat us alive if we don't show up. What would you say to this response? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with showing up. I think it's good that people in the industry are engaging at different levels with various government regulators. How effective that has been historically, I think is a matter of debate. So we can highlight, for example, the... Bit license in New York, mm-hmm. which was you know a couple of crypto generations ago, that was the fight that everyone was having, and these same arguments of to what degree should we engage with the regulators were coming up. Back then, all the major exchanges, the big companies, engaged fully with the New York Department of Financial Services, provided all sorts of useful feedback, and what came out of that was this hideous monstrosity a 60-page application for anyone trying to do crypto business in New York. And it effectively made New York like a barren wasteland per capita relative to many other cities in the world. And I believe also the author of the the bit license, his job became consultant for helping companies get around the bit license. Yeah, let's reflect a little bit on Ben Lasky. So after he spent a year or two crafting this monstrous bill in New York, you know, for the protection of New Yorkers. After it was done and launched, he left that department, went into his own private practice as a lawyer to help companies navigate the walls that he himself had put up. Mm -hmm. How that is ethical or legal is an interesting question. But then like, as if that wasn't embarrassing enough as something that a human would do, maybe because he didn't have enough people paying him in that role, he then ended up on the board of Ripple, getting paid monstrous sums to help govern you know, Ripple itself. So his career has been great since the bit license. It certainly was a good catalyst for him to get everything he wanted, and I'm sure he's made a ton of money from it. How has the average New Yorker benefited from all those important consumer protection laws that he put out? 
I don't think they have. What you can see here is there's a tremendous amount of distrust, I think, between kind of the crypto community and, and some regulators based on past experience. We've burnt in the past. And I do think this thing that Eric is echoing, which is probably something that you felt some of the pushback on, Sam, when you kind of put out some of your thoughts is, hey, we understand that regulation is coming, but bad regulation is worse than no regulation, you know, and we don't even have no regulation. We actually have regulation, right? And so we can't afford to get this thing wrong. We can't afford for an encompassing bit license type thing to sweep the entire country. And I'm sure you'd agree with that. I'm wondering maybe, Sam, if you could respond to that. And then also maybe your call for getting into the details. Let's start to get into the details of what your original proposition was. And so we can talk about them maybe piece by piece. But yeah, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so I guess I I feel a little confused, I guess, by the argument. So I think part of this is I'm just like coming at it from a philosophically not opposite direction, but just like sort of like some slightly different direction, which is like you know, I sort of like approach all this from sort of like, I don't know, let's evaluate that specific case or something. And I agree that the bit license has been a mess and has been bad. I completely agree with that. And has been worse than there not being a bit license. Absolutely true. And obviously, like I wasn't active in the industry at the time. So I can't say honestly that like, you know, I can tell you 100% what I would have thought at the time. But I think at the time, I would have reacted very differently to that than I am to the, you know, for instance, Stop Now Bozeman legislation. I think the biggest problem with the bit license is it's a state level license that only works in that state. But I think as a enormously involved process you have to go through just to unlock a single state, it is not reasonable. That sort of is a fundamental design flaw, I think, with the bit license. But for me, I guess I hear that and I'm like, that's why it's important for us to be engaging on the details of these because, you know, it's important for us, you know, to see something like that and say, hey, guys, like we should either do this at the federal level or have a passport from state to state. And I, you know, instead of like making it just a one state thing. So that's sort of like one thought there. And, you know, I think that like, in the end, like the details just matter a lot. And the problems were weren't some of the details. So I think, I don't know actually the details of exactly how the crypto industry lobbied on the bit license. It'd be interesting to me to hear. I think that like, there's also, you know, some extent to which, you know, you could say, look, like, I don't know exactly what was happening then, but like, to the extent there was going to be a bit license one way or another, it could have been appropriate to try and work to make it better rather than worse. And that's sort of like a, you know, somewhat independent or separate thing from, you know, thinking about like whether you should be lobbying for or against its existence. Can I jump in real quick, Sam? Yeah, totally. So I think importantly, the lesson from the bit license wasn't that we need to engage more. That was an example of heavy engagement. There are videos of industry leaders testifying in front of the New York Department of Financial Services. And there was huge amounts of discussion, discourse, uh, comments submitted through all the official channels. That was not an example of the industry abstaining from comment. Um, it was an example of the industry's best comments and the suggestions from the entire crypto community basically falling into the gears of New York politics. And I doubt that federal politics are much cleaner than a single state. So I hear you. I'm going to be honest, I'm more optimistic about this time than I would have been about that time. Mostly, I think, frankly, the industry's lobbying was not very sophisticated. And the industry's engagement, even if it was heavy, it was not sophisticated at the time. 
And so it actually, frankly, wouldn't shock me if it was the case that like, you know, we were going to be able to do it much better this time. And I will say that like, I strongly suspect that, you know, some feedback the industry has had has already had significant impact on what I expect this bill to look like. Like, I think it just straightforwardly is having impact this time. I don't know the details at that time. I agree that on priors, it doesn't seem like federal would be easier than state. Maybe it's just like it's being done in a more sophisticated and sort of like emerging app, but I, I don't know the details. I'm, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Like, it's definitely more sophisticated now, but the consequences yep. are also much bigger now. This is a oh, yep. federal matter and it will govern and influence how policy is set around oh. the entire world, whereas totally. New York never would. Oh, I totally hear you. Although it's not clear the lobbying was bad last time. Like it may have been ineffective. Sorry, I don't know the details of it, but are you saying the industry is lobbying in favor of the bit license happening or that they are lobbying to have edits put into it? They were lobbying to influence how it was written and what good or bad yep. things would be included in it. Yep. And so the other thing I would say though, and this is I think really the core thing that I think, is that like when you look at like DCCPA, like again, we don't know the details of what it will say, but there is going to be oversight of centralized exchanges. Like that's gonna happen one way or another. So at least that piece of it, and I totally agree that there are other parts of it that you may be objecting to, but at least that piece of it, like that's gonna happen one way or another. And it's a matter of how it happens. Whereas having a separate New York state framework for crypto that is separate from all the other states and the federal government was not an inevitability. And I think that that like that's a pretty big asymmetry in these situations. And so like, you know, killing DCCPA doesn't mean that like centralized exchanges with spot commodity markets will forever be unregulated. Like that's not going to happen. And on, Again, or all this stuff is market. already regulated, right? We have that, to, that, yeah, we have to acknowledge that. So let's do yeah. this. Let's get into the details and why there was this kerfuffle. Cause so, you know, Sam is talking about, you know, kind of getting into the details and he actually, he does think that there is a chance for the DCCPA to actually pass and, you know, some version of some of the thoughts from the crypto industry to be embedded, certainly on centralized exchanges. Now, Eric, I want to throw it to you. Okay. So Sam, I put forward a proposal called, and I'll share my screen here, possible digital asset industry standards. And this is not the DCCPA. Let's be clear on that. These are Sam's personal thoughts. I think this is written by Sam Bankman-Fried, but neither FTX this has all of those qualifiers, all right, disclaimers. But he goes through and he talks about hacks and accountability. He goes through and he talks about asset listing, token equities. He talks about consumer protections, sanctions, allow lists, and block lists, DeFi as well. As I went through this and I read this, I was like, oh, this is what regulators really want to hear about, right? Like they want to, these are the subjects that they're most concerned with. And Eric, you took issue with some of the the positions that SBF had in his original article. And you wrote a very thoughtful response, which I think was definitely the best response I read and much better than kind of a, you know, two minute rant on crypto YouTube. Um, won't name any names here. But what were some of the issues that you had with some of SBF's suggestions. Because again, if there is a shot at getting some regulation in, we sure as hell want to get it right, don't we? And it seemed like you were very concerned that this is not the right path to go down. What most concerned you in Sam's post? So yeah, again, importantly, we don't know the text of this DCCPA bill yet. So we're all kind of talking about it blindly in that regard. I'd say there are mainly two big issues that I had with the post. And I want to give Sam credit for how open he's been to feedback and how engaged he's been subsequent to that post. I appreciate that very much. The first one was when Sam said that we should 
that everyone else they must respect and follow OFAC. But to use that word respect, I think was a little bit revealing. And I wanted to counter that because OFAC should not be respected. And it perhaps bears discussion on why. So OFAC stands for the Office of Foreign Assets Control. It's a part of the Department of the Treasury, and they maintain sanctions lists. And any people, companies, organizations, and entire countries are on this list. It is illegal under current law for any American person or any American business to do business with anyone on these sanctions lists. So why is it unethical? Well, it includes entire countries. So in my post, I talked about Iran. It is illegal for any American to do business with an Iranian. This is patently unethical and is the kind of thing which we in the industry should be highlighting as emblematic of the status quo financial system and something that we vehemently oppose. It is not okay that an American cannot send money to a brave Iranian woman who is standing up for her freedom in that country just because she was born in that country. We should be reflecting on this as a people. And like, what kind of financial system do we want to be designing in the future? I don't think we want to be designing one where 80 million innocent people are excluded from the financial system. So yes, as Americans, do we have to follow OFAC as law? Yes. Should we respect it? Absolutely not. And my request here is for someone as preeminent as Sam to make that distinction and say, even if it must be followed right now, it is not an ethical body of law. The reason this is important is because the moral premises under which these regulations get imposed on us are important. They're always cast down as if we have these morally prescient individuals in the government that know what's right and wrong, and they keep us, the Wild West crypto industry, from acting badly. That needs to be challenged. We are building actually more virtuous financial systems than what exists today. And OFAC was a good example of that. So I'll pause there for a second. Yeah. So first of all, I did mean respect is in follow. And I hear your point of that being a, a at least a lazy choice of wording. And Maybe a what I, um, <laughs> you know, uh, perhaps what I had intended to say was follow it. And of course, I was lazy about a few other things there too. Some of which you called me out on various points, but like, you know, I said, everyone is pretty lazy about whatever and want. Obviously, if you're an Iranian trying to buy a bagel, but it's an Iranian selling it to you because you're in Iran, like that's not, oh, oh fact, doesn't make sense in that context. So I uh, acknowledge on that. I will say that I think that your Freudian slip point, I think in general, showing respect, even if you strongly disagree, has a lot of merit. And I don't think everyone agrees with me on this, and I don't think it's 100% clear that I'm right about it. But it is what I believe, that in general, even if you want to strongly disagree with something, with some exceptions, doing it while showing respect is the right way to do it. And that just creates better discourse, and it creates better engagement on both sides. And that if you come in openly and sort of like preemptively acknowledging the strengths of the other person's point, that will make them more open to engage as well. It'll make them feel more heard and feel like when you disagree with other parts of it, you're doing so having understood why they did what they did rather than like, well, this person doesn't even know why it's here in the first place. That's sort of like one thing I would say, you know, on OFAC, like, first of all, I have a lot of sympathy for the concern about disenfranchising and deplatforming innocent civilians. That sucks. Like, it sucks. It's not fair to them. They didn't choose that. They haven't been accused of it, you know, or even suspected of any, you know, wrongdoing. 
And whether or not the policy is right, that sucks. And I also think I would be like excited to see bilateral engagement around, you know, what are ways that, you know, we can sort of minimize the amount of collateral damage dealt while making sure to, you know, sanction terrorist activity. And I'm going to be honest, I haven't done a deep enough dive in some cases here to feel confident that I I know the right answer from a policy perspective in terms of what the right trade-offs are here. And I totally respect that, like, I at least have a lot of sympathy, um, if nothing else, for, you know, your perspective on OFAC. I think that, like, um, and I think the Iran case is the one where there are the most innocent people who get caught up in it by far. I think you can look at sort of like on the other side, North Korea, as an example where I think there's a lot to be said for being really careful to make sure that we're not at all facilitating financing you know, of terrorism there and that that is just like a large fraction of what's going on in North Korea. And so like, I think varies case by case. And you know, I don't know exactly what the right answer is in all of them. But but yeah, I hear you on that. And really, my core point is just like, ah, it's a lot. And whatever you think about it, it is the law, and we should follow it. And I also think strategically that just like to think that it was the right fight to choose, you would have to think that it was the one you cared the most about by far. I think that's sort of how the game is set up here, so to speak, that like this is the one that policymakers generally care about the most, which is you know, something to keep in mind. And I do think I will say that it is very important to enforce sanctions as a general matter. I think that like, there are a lot of cases where these are like important for the world remaining safe. That doesn't mean they're all perfect. And that doesn't mean I don't have concerns about some of them. And I also don't know enough to be confident in what I think about some of them. Like there are a lot of cases where, I don't know, maybe maybe if I knew everything that the United States knew, I would feel differently. It seems totally plausible. You know, I will say that like, you know, when it comes to Russia, for instance, I think that there is a lot to be said for the core sanctions. It's not entirely clear to me why every person who got sanctioned to get sanctioned. And that might just be because I don't know things. And you know that absolutely could be. But I definitely would say that I'm concerned, you know, if it is the case that there are some, you know, people who got sanctioned there who didn't really deserve it, for whom there wasn't much cause, because I think that that starts to undermine a lot of the world's confidence in their safety with the US dollar. But again, I don't know enough to feel confident that there was a mistake there. There are just things that like, don't necessarily seem clear to me. And I would find it very concerning if there weren't any further reasons they didn't know about for it. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm not advocating that in this discussion over DCCPA that we try to take the fight of abolish OFAC, right? Like that's going to be a non-starter. That's a battle for a different time and different day. What I am saying is that like when discussing something like OFAC, pointing out its moral deficiencies, at least in a blog post, is worth doing. I also think like just as a matter of principle, if the US government wants to block payments or deplatform or censor someone from global finance, let them bring an allegation of wrongdoing. Like how is that a radical position today? Right? Like if if the, if the government believes someone has acted wrongly or done something illegal, let them show the allegation before forcing people to block payments to them. Right. You know, even an allegation, let alone a conviction. But in terms of OFAC, there is no allegation. There's no allegation against 80 million Iranians that they've done something bad. Obviously, the vast majority have not. And I don't think it's any different for for North Korea. I mean, talk about any group of people that could use an open money system and break free of tyranny. It would be the North Korean people like we should advocate more crypto usage in North Korea 
because we understand the danger and tyranny of the North Korean government, right? And so to associate or to try to draw some comparison between the North Korean government and all the millions of innocent people that are literally suffering and dying there, I think is a big mistake. Eric, you're articulating a point that I really like, and I really want to double down on this. As a libertarian, I remember hearing some content from you on some other podcasts and talking about just the catch-22 that it comes with being a libertarian, while like no libertarian goes into politics to fight for libertarian ideals. It's almost antithetical, right? So you almost never really get what you want out of politics because... If you're a libertarian-minded person, you don't really, like, going to Congress and fighting for your ideals doesn't really seem interesting to you. And I think kind of what you're saying with this whole approach to regulation where, uh, I'll paraphrase, let's not go to Capitol Hill and, like, work with regulators when we finally have this crypto platform to stand on and support us and actually embody some of our ideals— for one of the first times, like the more libertarian, free market minded people have this infrastructure, smart contracts, decentralized protocols, DeFi, DAOs, to actually like stand up and prop up and support some of our deals with actual true like social coordination infrastructure. And I think what you're saying is let's not go and shoot ourselves in the foot by giving up what we have to stand on. And what we have to stand on is a permissionless finance system that can integrate the Iranians and integrate the North Koreans. And I think what you're saying is like, let's not give that up and let's make the regulators come take that from us with court battles and fights rather than going to them and, you know, doing some deals and handshakes where we actually end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Is this a fair articulation? Not quite. Not quite. I, again, I'm not, my ask of Sam and my plea here is not that we don't engage. I think there's nothing wrong with what Sam's doing in terms of engaging with the government. And I support various people and groups that do this. I'm sympathetic to those who have the view that any engagement is bad. I'm sympathetic to that, but I think the Hydra approach of everything from the most radical crypto anarchy to people in suits going to meet with those in Mordor, or I mean, in uh, DC, that they would all be effective in some ways, right? So yeah, I want to be super clear that that's not my ask here. What my ask is, is that people like Sam who are engaging, be very careful about what they ask for and where they draw the lines. And those specifics are critical. And I think Sam agrees with that point. Sequence is the all-in-one developer platform you need to build Web3 games and applications. For your users, Sequence is a smart wallet and it's the easiest, most intuitive onboarding your users will ever experience and comes with all the features users need to feel empowered in the Web3 world. Multi-chain support, NFT display, and users can buy SFTs, NFTs, and crypto directly with a credit or debit card. For developers, Sequence is the plug-and-play platform for Web3 games and apps. Their APIs let you bring NFTs, SFTs, and tokens into your game or application. And the Sequence Relayer enables gasless transactions for your users. Sequence already powers some of the best Web3 games like Skyweaver, NFT projects like Cool Cats, and marketplaces like NiftySwap. And Sequence is compatible with all the EVM chains, including Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, Optimism, and Avalanche. So go to sequence.xyz to get started unlocking the full potential of your application today. The reality today is that five corporations control the entire world of social media. They own our names, they restrict our content, they monitor our every move. And their time is up, thanks to our sponsor, Deso. Deso is a layer one blockchain built from the ground up to decentralize and scale social networks. With Deso, you can own your own identity, content, and social graph, and take it with you across hundreds of applications already built on the censorship-resistant Deso blockchain. Deso's storage advantages make it finally possible to build infinite state applications 
applications that can efficiently store and index large amounts of content and data fully on-chain. Deso also offers multiple crypto-native monetization primitives for developers and creators, including social NFTs, social DAOs, social tokens, and social tipping. So in order to experience the social layer of Web3, go to Deso.com and claim your username. That's D-E-S-O.com. TruFi is DeFi's largest credit protocol, connecting global lenders with institutional-grade lending opportunities. TruFi has completed over $1.7 billion in originations and paid out nearly $35 million to lenders, proving that DeFi is ready to take its next big leap into the $8 trillion credit market. TruFi gives lenders like you access to sustainable, high-yield opportunities backed by real-world investments, usually reserved for high-net-worth individuals. At the same time, fund managers use TruFi's financial infrastructure to bring their portfolios on-chain, benefiting from the global liquidity, cost savings, and transparency of DeFi. TruFi is a decentralized financial utility. The protocol is owned and governed by the TruFi DAO, and TruFi is here to bring DeFi into the golden age, bridging the power and access of crypto with institutional-grade lending opportunities and portfolio tooling. Explore the diverse financial opportunities available on TruFi or launch your own portfolio at TruFi.io. So Eric, what other specifics did you take issue with in Sam's original post? I mean, there's a lot of places we could take this. We could talk about DeFi. We could talk about kind of code. I know there are some points that you do agree with, but let's focus on maybe the deltas here and the disagreements. Aside from the overarching kind of like concept of respect for OFACT, for instance, there are some other like practical things that Sam proposed. What would you point out? What are things that you don't agree with? Yeah. Um, and I'll start this by also saying something that I did agree with and like, you know, Sam had a very creative suggestion for how exchanges should handle hacks and like trying to create a, a standard or a protocol for that. The specifics aren't super important, but that he was trying to do that, I think was great. And that being done as a set of industry standards is laudable. So well done there. Certainly the biggest area of contention both with my own response to Sam's post and with the crypto community at large is what Sam was saying about DeFi. And I'll try to characterize Sam's position correctly here. He was clear that at a protocol level, things need to remain open and immutable. So that's good. Where he made the big mistake is in suggesting that interfaces for decentralized protocols such as the front-end website of something like Aave or Uniswap, should perhaps be regulated as a financial institution. That line cannot be crossed. That line should not be crossed. And if we spend the rest of this discussion on this point alone, I think that would be valuable. My main ask of Sam in these discussions is that however important it is to regulate centralized custodians or intermediaries correctly, the current bill, the DCCPA, trying to do that and doing that well is understandable. If regulations in this same bill get attached to how decentralized products, i.e. non-financial intermediaries, are handled, that is going to be a big mistake. It's going to be done incorrectly, it's going to be done poorly, and it's going to harm America more than it harms the actual protocols themselves. So if I can make any request, it's simply to not include any concept of decentralized finance into a bill which is centrally trying to govern well central controlling intermediaries. Sam, what would you say? And, and Eric, are we talking just about the protocol or are we talking about the user interface? I know Sam had some propositions around that, the user interface that connects to DeFi applications. Is that sort of one and the same to you? Um, yeah. So 
Sam was clear that the protocols shouldn't be regulated, so that's good. But he was suggesting that interfaces to these protocols should be and should be regulated similarly to how a centralized intermediary under the Bank Secrecy Act would be regulated. That is the big line that we need to say no on. So Sam, did I characterize that correctly? And what are your thoughts currently? I think that's basically characterized, right? And I think I like, one thing I did take a little bit of, and by the way, I'm not sure you're wrong. To be clear on this, like I think it's a complicated question. I don't fucking know what the right answer is. I think you did characterize, but I think basically right. And I really appreciate that you sort of have put the thought in to make sure that you do that. I don't think everyone does that on either side. One thing that they do just want to note is like, and I think you're not your first or your third, but your second description of what I think you sort of said that you think it's important that decentralized applications not be regulated. And I think that they should be or something roughly like that. And I think that your first and third versions did clarify roughly correctly what I think. But I think the second version sort of blurred a little bit the lines between like a decentralized protocol and, well, at the very least, and parentheses, centrally hosted GUI. And so I just want to clarify, like, make it clear that like I do draw a distinction there. And then I think a lot of the discussion on Twitter failed to remember that distinction, even if it was pointed out periodically. And so I want to make sure that we keep that pretty clear. And that we not sort of like drift back and forth about, you know, what, what it refers to. So I don't know for sure what the right thing to do is here. One thing I will say is, well, first of all, again, we don't know what DCCPA will say. Don't have the final text yet. I do not think that we should be trying to hash out a lot of DeFi regulation in DCCPA. I think for, you know, most of the reasons you said, this is like, first of all, a lot of this is just permissionless code. And second of all, it's just a tricky area in general. And those are two recipes for disaster on trying to quickly cobble together a comprehensive regime for DeFi. And I don't think, although we'll see, that the DCCPA is going to be aimed at trying to put together a regulatory framework for DeFi. I think and hope that it will be quite light touch on that side. And that to the extent that it does reference DeFi, at least in prior drafts that, that have been released, most of that was actually centered around something else, which was if there is a broker dealer, if you have like Schwab or something, and it wants to access DeFi for its customers, what should the principles around that be? And I will say that that thing, I actually feel like pretty good about, I mean, I'm sorry, there are mixed parts of this, but I think like overall, like, you know, trying to create ways for highly regulated centralized financial intermediaries to interface with permissionless DeFi is like probably good and healthy and like will open up a lot to DeFi. And that like, so that part, like the devil's in the details there. And I don't know exactly what it's going to say, but I think it's potentially exciting and healthy. But putting DCCPA aside for a second, because it's like, I think in particular on the DeFi part, it's not clear exactly what it will say. And so it's going to be hard to hash out thoughts on it exactly. Maybe just drilling into the place where I think we probably at least somewhat disagree, which is on the, the, the GUIs. Maybe I'll make it a few points here. The first is that there are some blurred lines here. Like, and I'll acknowledge that like some of the things I've said, but I think it's sort of like forgotten about those blurred lines and treated it as if there was like crystal clear differentiation between different parts of this, which doesn't exist. But I think that the most important thing by far, and I'm interested if you disagree with this, but my instinct is that by far the most important thing is, or set of things is the following, that protocols can be permissionless, that on-chain code can be permissionless. Sorry, the only reason I'm saying can be here 
it's that, that is permissionless to write it and obviously could write on-chain code and put permissions in it. I'm not, we shouldn't make that illegal, but you know, that, that should be permissionless to write coding and you know, it, that code can be permissionless and that like peer-to-peer transfers and payments can be permissionless. Like those are things that I think are like incredibly important and fundamental here. And I think that like, if those are violated, I think those are sort of the sacred things because if those get violated, I think it just breaks the whole thing. And by the way, I think it's true for TradFi too. If you try to say everything is permissioned, no one could go to a shopping mall anymore. Like you could not buy food. Like the world would just starve the next day. And I think that like the result of that would be to like effectively ban digital commerce and say that like the only unregulated commerce can be physical unregulated commerce. So, but anyway, I want to check if you agree, not with my statement that I think that they should be permissionless, but with my claim that that's the most important thing by far. Yes, I think I agree with that. Cool. Um, I, I take a little issue with your point about the current payment system not being permissionless or being permissioned. Like today, it is absolutely permissioned. That oh. you can go with your credit card and buy something at the store is only because several intermediaries have your box ticked as approved, right? That is permissioned. And that can oh. be taken away from people for wrong think or for anything that you know some Orwellian government wants to do yeah. to them. Oh, sorry. I think what I'd say is parts of it are permission and parts of it aren't. And I think it's totally arbitrary which parts are and aren't. And I think that I agree with you on the parts that are like, sorry, you can go to a store and you can pay with a credit card or with a dollar bill. And one of those is intermediating. Ca- one cash. Of- yeah. Cash is yeah. permissionless, right? That's yeah. the last bastion there. I think you're making a good point here, which is like when you go to a store and you buy a bagel, it costs 2% to a payment processor. And that's if you're allowed to buy the bagel, right? That's if you have connectivity to the financial system. Now you can buy it with cash either way, I guess, but cash is a pain. And why does it cost 2%? I think a lot of that is because like you're trying to get like gigantic companies to zoom in and say like Alice wants to buy an everything bagel with cucumber. What do we think about that? And it's like, that's hot. And like, that's where that 2% is going effectively, right? That 2% is going because you're trying to mediate like that transaction. And as you said, like not everyone has a credit card and credit cards don't always work. And so that 2% fee is the good case. That's the case where the payment does work. So I agree that like a lot of the fact that payments are scripted is because of this. And so anyway, so it seems like we agree on what the most important things are and agree on what to do about those most important things. For where we disagree, here's my argument. And my argument might be wrong. Like it's, I don't feel 100% sold by my argument here. I on balance currently think it's correct. Um, but basically what it is, is that like, given, she's taking as a given that that is the most important thing, that smart contracts, that code, that, oh, validators is another thing I should have thrown at that, which I assume you agree with, that it's very important that validators um, can be permissionless. Or else again, you have like 10,000 random people running code to validate mathematical transactions and also think about everything bagels with onions at 7-Eleven and Alice, which is insane. And maybe I'll say, just to clarify, I make explicit a website hosted on a centralized service by an American that targets financial products at American retail backending onto DeFi, but is non-custodial. And so it's not it's not custodying, which I'm guessing is maybe where you would be drawing this line here. No, um, non-custodial. So let's use a specific example, like a US-hosted, US-owned yep. front-end for yep. Aave. Yep, which is, to be clear, in this case, U.S. hosted, U.S. owned, and offered to Americans. And sorry, offered to Americans is a vague word, 
but like I sort of want to say like isn't IP blocking the US or something like that and like I don't know we there's lots of interesting details here about that but like yeah, the question get, is should an American yeah. need a license to right. offer a front end for a back end DeFi protocol like Aave yeah and, your, and, and your can, blog said right. yes and sorry just want to clarify it offered to Americans correct so, yeah two Americans yeah, yeah. So I want to sidestep for a second so we can get back to it. The question of whether I think if I were dictator, that should be required and rather answer a question of what policy should we be proposing and arguing for? And my core thought here is the following, which is that I claim that the most important thing here at the end of the day, the most important thing is that smart contracts validators payments remain open and free. And that the most important thing is that that gets protected at all costs. And that because of that, like I am relatively willing to accept compromises if they preserve the things that I believe have the vast majority of the value for DeFi. And that plays a non-trivial part in my thinking here, which is that first of all, like if my best guess, my projection is let, let's just expand out 10 years from now and say, you know, what will empirically in expected value terms regulation look like for DeFi in the United States for with all these caveats, again, Americans offering to Americans, blah, blah, blah. If I had to guess, I would guess in expected value terms that it looks worse than it does in a world in which it's like validators, smart contracts, payments totally free, but in which the centralized American hosted targeting Americans of a GUI requires a burger dealer license or something like that. Like my projection is that that world is better than the expected value of what the world will be. Maybe I'll just pause for a second there and ask you, do you agree with that statement about the relative expected values? I think the tendency of the regulators is to make the world a darker place no matter what. Now, it's up to non-regulators. It's up to you, Sam. It's up to people in the industry yep. to highlight the reasons, whether ethical, moral, legal, why those people should not be imposing the controls that they want to impose. And I agree that the protocol being immutable is the most important thing, but I kind of feel like you're starting to compromise far too early. Just as in the same way that like, if we agree that the heart or the brain is the most important part of the body, we would not so readily surrender our arms and our legs to be chopped off just because the heart may be arguably more important, right? Like let's keep the whole being here. Let's not invite in this kind of restriction. And if they force the restriction, then they'll force it and history will be the judge of that. But let's not be the ones who invite that in upon ourselves. So I totally hear you. I want to make an empirical claim, which it might be wrong. And if this claim is wrong, then I change my position on some of this. But my empirical claim is the following. Maybe I'll sort of like lay out my logic here. Step one, most important thing, validators, et cetera. Step two, I predict that in expected value terms, that compromise is better than what we will get. Maybe it'll be better, maybe it'll be worse, but like it's better than what we're expected to get because it preserves the most important thing. And I'm not 100% sure that that will be preserved. I really hope it will be. Step three, I think we have to fight to make sure it gets preserved. I think that's the most important fight. And then step four, and I think this is an important and non-trivial stuff that I might be wrong about, but which is very relevant for my thinking on this, is my sense is that 
it is much more effective at getting what you want the most if you come to the table with a stance which is immediately recognized as willing to compromise and reasonable. And I'm not yet making a statement about what matters or what the right thing to do is, but that like my belief is that like if you come to the table in DC and ask for exactly everything that you want as your first ask in a very forceful way, you will not get what you want and that you will not be taken as seriously and that the way to maximize the odds of getting what you want the most is to express a willingness to compromise on the things that are less important. That is my yes, belief. That, in principle, that's that's absolutely right. You're not wrong on that principle, but you're sacrificing far too much right. from, our, so from we, our position here. Let's be pragmatic for a second. Forget all principles and everything. If DeFi front ends catering to Americans need to be licensed, DeFi in America dies. It dies. People will not use DeFi through licensed front ends because it will simply look like CFI. There will be no meaningful distinction. That can't be sacrificed. Well, I think I disagree with that, but I more strongly disagree with at least one of the things you said, even if I don't know which one. Like, in other words, I don't know that you can simultaneously think what you just said and also think that by far the most important thing is that validators et cetera, remain permissionless. Like, because what you're saying right now is you lose the whole thing. If you give up permissionless front ends, but then you also said that you get most of the value if you have like permissionless backends. And so I think I'm now confused about which of those you think. If you gate the way that people use DeFi, 99% of people use DeFi, which is through a GUI. If you gate that as a licensed financial institution, you have turned DeFi into TradFi. And so just to clarify then, like the sense I'm getting now is basically that you think that like the front end is just about as important as the back end. That like, you know, if yes, if you got like 70, 30 odds on like which was permission and which was permissionless, you'd be kind of like, I'll just take whichever gives me the 70%. Like I kind of think about equally important. Is, like, is that kind of how you're thinking about this? I'm thinking of this from the perspective of actually wanting the entire world to be able to use an open immutable financial system. And 99% of those people use GUIs. So if you gate the access to permissionless blockchains with GUIs that need financial regulation on them, we've failed. We end up with TradFi. I feel confused about whether you agree with my statement. I okay. feel confused. What am I missing? Uh, sorry. I know what you think the best case is here. I know what you think the worst case is here. I what I'm trying to say is like, is an intermediate case closer to the worst case or the best case? Like, if you this have a case- This is the intermediate case. My best case is that governments leave free sovereign individuals alone to interact economically as they will, like the country was supposed to be founded on. But that is a radical notion that no one in Washington accepts anymore, <laughs> granted. Sure, so sorry. So if you take, sorry. Of the following three cases, granted that there are many cases beyond these three, but of the following cases, case one, all of DeFi and things related to DeFi are unregulated. Case two, backend unregulated, centralized frontend regulated. Case three, backend regulated, centralized frontend regulated. Do you think case two is closer to case one or case three? I think it's closer to case three. Got it. So you think that basically like, 
if anything here requires oversight, that you've lost most of the value. I think we need to move the conversation up a level and acknowledge that the oversight in DeFi already exists and it's done by immutable code that operates perfectly as written. Uh, it has oversight. Sorry, I agree. Oversight from a human-based financial regulator in the government. Why do we want to invite that? I'm not making an argument about whether I think it's good or bad. What I'm saying is, and maybe you dispute that we have to choose because maybe you think that like it is fairly likely that we end up in a world in which there is no human regulatory oversight of anything related to DeFi. And if you think that that's an interesting belief, which is not my belief, but which like would be very interesting if you thought it was true. Um, There's already human oversight over these things. Fraud is already illegal. Theft is already illegal, right? It doesn't matter if I do it through a DeFi smart contract. If I steal from someone, that's regulated already. Sorry, right? uh, I hear you. Okay, I feel like we're being a bit pedantic here, but I will go with the flow and I will like add a lot of words to this sentence. But I think you know what I'm trying to ask. And I'd appreciate it if you ask the question you know I'm trying to ask. So... Is your belief that if any part of the flow by which many people currently access DeFi in which you go to a American human hosted website aimed at Americans hosted on AWS, paid for with a credit card, that then backends onto Aave in a non-custodial way, that if any part of that requires an explicit license from a government financial regulator, that that already means we're close to the worst case in absolute value. And that like, it's not worth that much to talk about which parts of it do and don't require a license because if, if any of them do, it's already like, you've already lost basically the whole war. Is that roughly what you think? Yes. I think if okay. that is the outcome, then none of us should be proud of anything that we've been doing to build this whole industry. The entire point of this is open permissionless finance. And when we say that, it is not just a slogan, it is the entire point. And if you exclude 99% of people from open permissionless finance, then all you've done is make a more complicated, more expensive TradFi system, right? So, that, that's not acceptable to me and I think to most of the people that care about why we're doing this in the first place. I think I disagree with your last statement about exactly how it's acceptable to and not, although I also think I... Maybe it would be if it was phrased the way you phrased it. Um, but okay, I think I think I now understand your view here. And your view here, tell me if this is right or wrong. But my understanding now of your view here, roughly speaking, is that, and I think I understand why my previous question didn't get at this, and I'm sorry for that. I now think your view is, roughly speaking, that if anything in this process requires a financial license, then that means that the people, so to speak, won't be able to access it. As that means we've already lost. And that- Yes, just like, just as if we were having this discussion 25 years ago when the web was being created and we were taking these same positions and you were asking me if any part of the web stack that lets someone log onto a web browser and access something as powerful as the entire tome of human knowledge like Wikipedia, if any part of that required a license, would we have lost the battle? Yes. Yes, the web would not be the beautiful thing that it is today. The reason that it is so special, the reason that it is so innovative, the reason it's so dynamic is because people do not need permission to access the web, to read to it, to write to it. And it's amazing that that has lasted. 
And anyone who researches the history of the web knows that these very same battles and discussions and debates happened back in the 90s. It would be the height of irony if crypto entrepreneurs then gave up that very same argument 25 years later and allowed finance itself, which is no more dangerous than information, to become a permissioned system. Okay, I hear you. I hear your point here. And I have a lot of empathy for it. I think it's like, I think that there is a totally plausible argument to be made here, which you're making. That, yeah, that like any amount of, if anywhere in this process we're requiring a license, then in practice, the worry is basically in practice, no one's going to be able to access it. And that in like, practice, it's no longer an open financial system. You've lost that. So if you're okay with losing that, if you're okay with having a closed permission financial system, then we see things very differently. So I guess I don't see things in binary. Like, I guess what I. I would tell like a very binary statement. It's a statement of a line. It's a statement that if we cross this line, we've lost permissionlessness, which is the entire point. But I don't think permissionlessness is binary. Like, I think that there are shades of gray here and that you're sort of sweeping that a little bit under the rug. And that like the real answer is that like, I think there are costs to losing this line. But I also think that like, that doesn't mean that you've lost everything. Like, I think that like in particular, sorry, maybe more explicit here. I think that if you end up in a position where it's licensed to deploy a smart contract or to interact with a smart contract with code, that puts a gear in the works that is very difficult to overcome. Like, I think then you just get like on-chain stuff just doesn't work. Like it just like you can no longer. Yeah. So we agree on that statement. So on that side, I think I feel maybe somewhat similarly to your sort of sense of like, it's very difficult to find ways to mess with that, that don't break the whole thing. I think I don't feel nearly as strongly about the thing I said. So if what you're saying is that an American hosted GUI, even an American retail hosted in a centralized way on a centralized cloud server requires some sort of financial licensure. I don't think that that basically breaks DeFi. And I think there are a lot of reasons that I don't think it does, you know, thinking through like, what impact does that actually have? Like, well, you know, I mean, I I can make this very practical. If a company needs to be licensed and do KYC to operate its American front end for Aave, that company now has a compliance program. That company has registered in a certain jurisdiction. That company is now taking personally identifiable information from millions of users and storing it. There is nothing decentralized about that model. That is a centralized model that is endangering people with custodianship. That is TradFi, that is not DeFi. So I think, sorry, that model, meaning that company, but some other parts of this stack are still definitely decentralized. Not everyone's gonna be accessing it through that protocol. So if nothing else, I think like other smart contracts aren't gonna be accessing it through that portal, for instance, like that's a big deal. I think that like, you can still have things just building on each other in every direction, which is super cool. I think other countries can have different regimes, which is super important. I think that like American can still freely contribute IP and products. And on top of all of that, I don't even agree that that company is definitely taking PII. Like, I think that many of them would be. But like, I think I could describe a system to you that I think would probably get there on a regulatory context without that company taking any PII, which I think is a little bit of a side point, except to say that like, I think there's just a lot more nuance in this than what you're saying, right? Like, let's say that you had on-chain 
you know, you had some people KYC for other purposes with some company. That company wrote out on chain, this person's address is KYC, not saying anything else about them other than that I have KYC them and given them a check mark. And then this front end only let addresses in that list interact with it. Then this GUI is not taking any PII while doing so, right? And again, that's like a little bit of, a, of an in the weeds point. But like, I think that's just like true of a lot of the things relevant to this GUI thing. And so I, I guess I just like think this in practice has a lot fewer of the downsides than you do. Although I think it still has downsides. Like I'm still concerned about it. Like I, I'm not. So Sam, just to take a higher level point, because yeah. you do think it still has downsides and you would yeah. prefer a system that didn't make this compromise. One question I think I'd have for you, and maybe like Eric or the crypto community is also asking the same thing is like, so why are we being forced into this um, choice now? Like, so to use Eric's example from the 1990s, why not come back when our regulators understand DeFi a little bit better, when our market share and education around the US populace or different jurisdictions around the world is a little bit stronger, people have seen the practical use cases. Why can't we sort of strive for the best and have regulation that goes into effect remain silent. Why isn't it enough to just do the CFI regulation? Why are we forced into this position of terrible compromise if what we want is the outcome where we don't have to make this user interface compromise? So I don't think I'm arguing for us to try to make that happen. Like, I think that's misrepresenting pretty grossly what my position is. And I feel like I've never said that and I feel like that, I, I don't know, like what I've said is that empirically, it might turn out to be the case that this is true. And I have implied that that might be a compromise that we could live with, but I'm not saying that we should make that happen. And I think that like, I'm not saying that that's something I think DCCPA does. I'm not saying that we go and make it our priority to make that happen. Like those I think would be probably not the right tactics. I think what I am saying is that, you know, when asked by a regulator, would I think that that was appropriate? I think what I would say is that the most important thing was to keep smart contracts, validators, payments decentralized. And that like, if that did mean that like, you know, essentially hosted front hands by American targeting American retail had to be licensed, I think that could be reasonable. I think that that's like a little bit of a different statement, Sam, which is that- we, um, Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off here, but if the question was, let's acknowledge that the email protocol will be permissionless as a protocol, but every email front end requires licensure and KYC so that we can make sure no one's sending communications with terrorists, where would your position on that question be? So, okay, so first of all, I think that's not quite the right no? comparable. I think that sounds Why? more like payments to me than no, like we're just talking landing. like we're just talking about emails here, right? Like the sending of messages across the web. If the well, protocol was going to be immutable and no one would have to put any yep. sort of censorship in the protocol of email. Yep. But it was the law of the land in America that every email front end provider required KYC from its users. Yeah. Because under the justification that we do not want people sending information back and forth with terrorists. Yep. Where would you so, stand on that position? Oh, I'd be strongly against that position. I think why? it'd be I think that'd be why? Why would I be against it? Because I think that it I think it'd be like against freedom of speech. I think it'd be disenfranchising a lot of people. I think I would not trust in practice that it would do a good job of sorting people. I think that like the, the just the gains from it are relatively small and the risks of it are massive. 
And yes. I think it would also just introduce a ton of friction everywhere. So I agree with you on all of that. I think that like, and sorry, this is, uh, Why is I, money I don't know different? How, so I don't know how compelling you're going to find this. One thing I will say is that like, I'm making a distinction here between, for instance, payments versus derivatives contracts. And that like, it's email feels to me more like payments. Well, it's weird because I'm not sure exactly what the equivalent of derivatives contracts is in the email paradigm or there's the like, you know, messaging paradigm or something. But like, I think that like, that is one of the reasons that I do think that I'd be very worried about a world in which we ended up with like, you know, every payment ever being permissioned. I think that would be crazy and untenable. And that feels to me like the closest comparable to the email thing. Why is Ave somehow different than email? So why is it different than email? Um, you, you argued so well and so passionately yeah. to not block email with yes. licensing and KYC. I loved hearing that. Yep. That filled my soul with joy. Such yeah. good arguments. Why yeah. does that not apply to financial transactions? So why does it not apply to financial transactions? I think there are a few things here. So first of all, okay, to some extent it does, right? Obviously some of the answers here is that I think there are a lot of ways in which it does apply and which I have similar feelings. Like, so I'm not gonna say that there is no similarities there. All I'm gonna try and argue is that I think that I at the very least feel significantly more strongly about payments than I do about Abe, for instance. So here's why, just looking at the trade-off of benefits and costs, right? Just looking at like, what is that trade-off in practice? When you look at, you know, payments, or at least let's say when you look at like email, that's something where it's used constantly by everyone in lots of crucial ways day to day. And it's sort of like a really central part of how we communicate. Today um, it is. Today, in, in 1994, right. it was not. And yep. I wonder what it would look like if all of that was licensed. Uh, it's an interesting question. And so, okay, I think that from a payments perspective, that feels similar to me in some respect. That like, that's a really fundamental everyone's doing day to day. And like, gumming up the gears on that is real bad and like really disenfranchises people. And so why, why do you see that for payments? But if I'm trying to pay Ave, the logic changes. Why? So... First of all, I think that like borrow lending protocols, um, I think they're awesome. I think they have a lot of utility. And I really, sorry, I really want to make this clear. Like on an absolute scale, I'm a huge fan of them. And I think they're super cool. I don't think that they're as important to the world as the ability to pay for things. Like, I think that just like on a relative scale, like, you know, if I had to choose like which one of those is like more central to like important thing to around the world is clearly payments. And I think it's by like an enormous factor. Like, I think it's not like a factor of like 1.2 or something. I think it's more like one of them grinds commerce to a halt. The other one is sad is how I feel about it, roughly speaking. And so like, you know, I just like quantitatively think that that like, yeah, that one of them is, is more important. Second thing is that when you look at like, so in terms of like the costs, you know, of gumming up the gears on them, I think just like massively high in one case and the other. Second of all, is that like, especially when you look at more complex products, like there's a range of things here. Right? And I understand that like 
one could be worried about lots of things being swept up into this. But especially when you look at more complex products, I think that, first of all, to the extent that they're going to be used by many fewer people, the costs of, for instance, KYC in aggregate goes down, you know, and that like those people are using it much more each means that, that again, the cost of a one-time friction cost goes down. Now, to be clear, I feel very differently about a one-time friction cost and an every-time friction cost. If what you were saying was that like, in order to use Aave, every single time anyone used it, they had to go initiate a new annoying permissioned process, that would be very bad. Like that would kill it. And I'd be very sad about that. Now, most of these things, ideally, optimally, and query whether you think this would actually be true in practice, but ideally would be one-off per user things. A type of thing where like, you know, the first time that you registered for Aave, you know, you would spend 10 minutes going through this process and then never again. And I think that that, while sad, is just like a much lower cost than if you had to do this every time that how, that, how that about yep. when the Iranian woman tries to do that the first time and it's not 10 minutes, it's never. Yep. Oh, I totally hear you on that. Why yep. are you okay with that? What you by okay? humanitarian perspective? Like what you mean? Okay. With that. There are lots of bad things that happen in the world every day. And I don't grind to a halt because of that. I try to do the best I can. I try and move things on the margin in a constructive direction without sort of like giving up because some bad thing happens. And like, I'm not saying I'm happy about that. I'm not happy about that. But also, like, it's not infinitely bad. I mean, it's somewhat quantifiable, right? You know, it's about 1%. That's about how bad it is. And that sucks. And like, but also, you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with bathwater here. And, you know, I, I think that like, you know, obviously also there's still be, you know, Iranian commerce in Iran with Iranians. But I, you know, I understand that that is not the same thing as real global financial access is a very different thing. But just to say that, like, I think that the like, you know, the scope here does matter to me because we are in a world where like, we are always making trade offs. And like, we are always trying to decide, given all the factors before us, realistically speaking, what we can do, and what we should do. And so like, you know, I think that these things, while bad, are not not infinitely so. So that's another piece of this. You know, when you look at like the reasons to permission them, I think at the very least having like a knowledge-based test on complex financial products is not an insane thing to do, especially when you look at, you know, websites that are marketing and targeting these at retail users. I think that that is a kind of thing that, could help reduce fraud, reduce scams, while still making it the case that anyone who did actually understand these products could use them. And by the way, I will make it clear, I will fight against monetary threshold tests to access financial products. I think those are bad. I think they're discriminatory, discriminatory. I think they're classist. I think they're racist. I think they're just like real bad. I think that like, being in a world where you say that only the rich can access financial products is fucked up. And so like, I'm not saying that like, I will support every type of regulation one could imagine for them either. So I think that some types are just bad. And I think that we as a society have messed up on that in a lot of cases and had unnuanced takes. And, but I think that if you're saying that like, you know, you have to demonstrate that you understand the products 
that you're using, that at least feels a lot more reasonable to me, especially again. You don't see that as paternalistic? Oh, I do see it's a little bit paternalistic. And I'm not saying that I feel unreservedly good about it. But on the other hand, if you say like, should people be able to market really scammy things pretty aggressively with no barriers to anyone using it? Like that's a stronger statement. And, and scam, I'm not saying- scams are illegal. We, we don't need new regulations to make scams illegal. So scams are illegal, but if you only do that in a retrospective sense, if you never look proactively at them, then for what it's worth, and, and this isn't the worst possible thing, uh, but it does mean that like, you know, you only catch scams, you know, like after they've already scammed people. And like, there's at least an argument to having a proactive check on is this a scam before allowing it to go forward. Now, there are costs to doing that as well. So I don't want to say that like it is clearly pure good to have that check, but there are some advantages to doing so. So I think that's like, you know, a factor here as well. And I think it's not crazy to want to have that check in place. And I think that like, you know, when you have a site that might be like really deceptive in how it describes what the decentralized on-chain protocol that it was marketing to its users does, right? Very heavily implying that it does something very different than what it actually does. You know, maybe you say, okay, well, that's a scam. They should go after it. Maybe they're popping up all over the place. Maybe it's complicated to figure out. I think it's complicated. And that like, I feel like at least more on a relative scale, I feel like the costs are lower. And the advantages are higher. I think the costs are way lower. And the advantages are moderately higher to putting permissions on centralized front ends for derivatives trading protocols than they are for payments or centralized front ends for pure, pure, pure okay. payments. So yep. to bring this back a little bit, we're debating right now, like how should DeFi be regulated, right? And this is a big open conversation. And you and I have two views among many. Yep. In terms of the DCCPA, as you've yep. acknowledged, it's very hard to get DeFi regulation right. You're not even yep. sure where you stand on it. Yep. And you're one of the smartest people in the industry. Can we acknowledge at least that the political class, the regulators themselves, are nowhere near ready to be regulating DeFi? And whatever the appropriate regulations are for DeFi, this bill is not where they should be contemplated. We are not ready. And thus, the DCCPA should not include any conception of DeFi, because if it does, it's going off the track. Do you agree with that? Um, Sorry, sort of. There's no part I strongly disagree with. There are a lot of parts that I would put differently and feel conflicted about. So first of all, I'll just say briefly, I think the smartest, most knowledgeable people tend to be the least certain in general. I think the fact that I'm uncertain doesn't mean I don't think anyone should be certain. I think it's fucked that some people are, but I think it will always be uncertain. And that doesn't mean that like, you know, we have to give up on ever acting. So I, I will always be uncertain. I'm, I'm not advocating to give up on ever acting. No, I'm I, I, very no I, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Do you, you sorry, want sorry, to exclude DeFi from so, DCCPA? First of all, or, most, yeah. right. In general, I would argue that it would be ideal to basically exclude DeFi from DCCPA. I think that would be the ideal approach to say, look, we're gonna figure out DeFi later. This is not a DeFi bill, this is a CeFi bill. That is what I think roughly speaking would make sense here. And I think that would be appropriate for all the reasons you said. I wanna give one caveat to this, which is I'm interested in taking on this. One thing that has been in some drafts, at least I think of DCCPA, 
I'm interested in your thought on is what if there was do some studies to have some discussions about eventually developing a framework for how an already regulated centralized custodial broker dealer could access liquidity from a on-chain smart contract. That feels good to me because the status quo is that it's effectively illegal to do so. So that's an example of a DeFi provision that I think is good. That's reasonable under the condition yep. that the scope is narrowed to precisely that kind of party. Right. If the so scope I, is how does a business, for example, yep. interact with DeFi, yep. that means that any person's LLC now has to fall under the right. licensure, right? That's so, a very different question. I totally hear you. So anyway, some of what the DCCPA says about DeFi, in fact, most of what it is, is about the thing I said. I think that thing's at least reasonable and probably good, but I acknowledge your concerns here. Um, outside of that, I basically think that like hunting on DeFi is the right thing to do because I think it's complicated. And I think that like, you know, it's not going to be easy to get right. I will give a few reasons that I would make a weaker statement than the one you made, in addition to the thing I've already said. First of all, I think um, it's, well, I believe that the people working on DCCPA are unusually thoughtful and knowledgeable. And I share your prior about what happens when, you know, a bunch of bureaucrats get together and try and like write down how people should use a product they don't know. Like that generally produces nonsense. I will say that like in this particular case, like maybe it's just dumb luck. I think in part it is, but I do think it happens to be the case that like there are just like unusually good, thoughtful public servants who are working on this, who are unusually knowledgeable about crypto and about DeFi. And in part, because I believe they viewed it as their duty before even writing a bill, before even figuring out how, like whether any version of a bill would be scoping DeFi in or out, that they had to understand the subject matter. And I don't think that's always the case. I think often people act without understanding it. I've seen that happen countless times. Yeah, um, I will grant, let's assume for the sake of the discussion yeah. that everyone working on it is very knowledgeable. Yeah. Cool. I'm not and, arguing yeah. that one. And maybe they're not, but like, that's what, at least my belief is premised on that. So, okay. okay. It shifts me a little bit in the direction of being, and again, I don't see these as binary things. I see it as all as a spectrum and it shifts a little bit, what I'm comfortable with. I'm not all the way, but a little bit. So that's one thing that I would say in this particular case. Another thing that I would say is, you know, what are the provisions? Well, we don't know it's going to be in the bill, but what are in various drafts that have been circulated? What are provisions that exist here? First of all, I think that like one thing that I've seen is like commissioning a study to determine what might be a productive direction to go in with respect to, well, really it's with respect to regulated entities accessing DeFi. So not only is it in the end, I think targeting a healthy thing, which is how do regulated entities access permissionless smart contracts, but it is in fact taking the approach of let's not try to write the answer down right now. Let's like acknowledge that we should think about this and talk about this. Now, I acknowledge that like you may have concerns about how this study will go and I hear those, but I do think that that shifts me a little bit more. I think like in general- I don't study, mind the study. Yep. So the study is, you know, that's a fine and appropriate thing. And I think it's a study again about a like, pretty healthy direction here. Now, I think that one could totally reasonably have concerns 
that this will bleed over that like this will bleed over into not just like how does a currently regulated broker dealer interface with DeFi and into like you know why should we ever allow commerce to happen and that sounds facetious but that is a worry of me. like i am seriously worried about like extreme anti-commerce and anti-freedom things happening um, so in, in politics. let, let so, me comment yep. on that really quickly yep if that kind of nightmare gets proposed let them propose it and then let us talk about it and show the world what they're proposing and even yep. if we lose let history judge it oh i ag- right? i agree we should not be proposing something that we really don't like. And I claim, I think, well, sorry, again, we don't know what DCCPA says. As of the last draft that leaked, I claim that at least my reading of the intention of it was that it was not trying to regulate DeFi. It was trying to have studies about how CFI should be able to interact with DeFi. Um, so I've I've heard some very worrying things that in more recent language, the target is shifting from just regulated institutions to DeFi and DeFi users. If that's and, not true in the language that we see, then great. But I do not feel like it's going in a comfortable direction. Sorry, right now. when you say that, just to clarify, are you saying that that is true as of after the most recently leaked version? I don't know what's the most recently leaked version. But the people that I know that are dealing with this are not happy with the recent movement of it. I'm going to be a so bit of a dick here and say, can you read the most recently read, read version and then we continue this podcast? Like, I don't actually want to say that, but I actually am a little shocked that you haven't. Like, that's what started this whole thing. Like, this whole dispute on Twitter started with a leak of a version of DCCPA. Like, the whole text was there posted. Like, I'm a little surprised that you would have written this blog post and, like, done all this without having read it? Am I wrong? To be My surprised? concern isn't with how drafts are written. My concern is with how the bill is written. And I wanted to comment on your thoughts about it because you're influencing how that bill is written. Right. So I totally hear you. I, sorry, I'm not even saying with, with respect to like this podcast, but like I haven't heard the things that you're alerting. Sorry, I have not heard from a source I trust that the things you're alluding to are happening. I've heard vague rumors of some people being worried that maybe they would happen. We'll see how it turns out. I, we'll, all I we'll want to establish here, yep. all I want to establish here, and I think you agree with this, is that the target of whatever rules are proposed are intermediaries. That those are the affected targets. Whether or not that means how those targets interact with DeFi or not, that's understandable. But if the target moves from intermediaries yep. to normal, unregulated, or non-financial businesses operators of websites, people who are interacting with DeFi, that that is a line that should not be crossed at this juncture. Do you agree with that statement? I certainly agree with most of it. Um, I certainly agree with users. I certainly agree with developers. I certainly agree with validators. I agree with operators of websites. I do agree with that. I'm going to be honest. Like, I sorry, I might be off on this read, but like, I'm not feeling super optimistic about like, like my read here, which again might be wrong, but my read here is that like, at the end of the day, that might be the trade-off that we have to make. And I think that would be, I think, and it could be wrong that some versions of that, if very carefully scoped would be the right one. And so I think I would have to see the details of it to know on some things there, exactly what I would think and how bad I think it would be and how much it would change my view of the net thing here. 
I don't feel confident that I'm thinking about that part, right? Like, that's just like, that is my current, like, on net, I guess, sort of thinking about how to sort of mesh these things together. Um, I, I think that, like, some versions of that would be more free than the status quo. Like, I think some versions of that would be, frankly, deregulating relative to how things are, realistically speaking, today. Because I think, realistically speaking, today, there is effectively some amount of regulation on some of these front ends. Like, I think that is how some regulators are treating it today. And so sure. I think that's like worth acknowledging. And, and I think that changes my mind a little bit about like exactly where I think the lines to draw are here. But anyway, you know, all of that being said, like I would certainly be really cautious and nervous about language around that and like would be very nervous about it unless it was like really carefully done. But I, I don't think for what it's worth that I would be comfortable giving a sort of blanket statement of like anything that touches any front end in any way, unless it's an already licensed institution is a deal breaker. Like, I don't think I would go that far. Understood. Guys, um, this has been a, exactly the conversation I think the crypto community wanted. And I just want to thank both of you for participating so openly. This has been hugely productive, I think. I just have like two quick questions and keep these as brief as you'd like to be. But I want to go back to the challenge SBF you made at the beginning of this conversation to steel man the other's case. Can you just give a steel man for Eric's case here? And then Eric, I'm going to ask you to do the same for Sam's. Yeah, totally. I think I'll, I'll sort of give two different types of steel mans of it. Caveat again, just to be absolutely explicit to anyone listening to this, this does not represent my all things considered view, although I do agree with some parts of it. This is me attempting to steal and argue for a different person's case here. Put that caveat somewhere on this. Do not we won't these. we won't create yeah. a gotcha clip here, yeah. Sam. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is not for you. This is for uh sort of mal our, fr our friend who doesn't like glasses. Okay. You uh, might be in the chat right now, by the way. Who knows? Oh, who it's possible. Anything could happen. But you know, first of all, what I would say is um, that in general, like deciding what someone is and isn't allowed um, to do with their own money should have a presumptive concern of paternalism. And it should have a presumptive concern that I, you know, are you uh, going to end up doing something that is A, hurting the people you are claiming to protect be not what those people would ask you to do in fact they would tell you to stop trying to protect them c heavily discriminatory in exactly the ways that you would be concerned it would be discriminatory against the underbanked against minorities against rural populations against the poor against people in really difficult situations would it persist uh class disparities that's one concern that i would have and again this is different if there's regulation claiming that something is going to harm an unconsenting third party, but if this is just someone acting on their own behalf, then I think there should be a presumptive deep concern about whether it is really helping the person you are claiming to be helping if it is paternalistic. And then second of all, what I would say, there's something magic that happens when you have permissionlessness. There's something magic that happens when you have pure on-chain actions. And in particular, what you see, which I do think is just incredibly powerful, is you can end up in this situation where you can just build, where 
you can build on what's been built, where you get exponential growth in innovation. And as soon as one step here is permissioned, instead of the whole system being able to innovate at the level of computer code and human innovation and action and, and cooperation, it goes at exactly how slow and bureaucratic the single most slow and bureaucratic permissioning agent is. And the more permissioning agents you have, the worse that gets. But even one, even one of them, right, with a week turnaround time, might take you from 10 seconds to a week in innovation timescale. And when you, that is a serious, serious risk for throwing permissioning into an otherwise permissionless system. Similarly, when you do something like what we see with chargebacks on current transfers, ACH you know, and credit card transfers, where there is a system whereby it might, rarely is, but might be the case in some cases that if a payment happens, it might be reversed two months later and that you can't compute whether or not that will be the case. That is a sort of bespoke human action deciding what would happen there. When you have a system like that, you end up in a world where if you get paid something, there's nothing you can do to become absolutely confident that you actually got paid. There's nothing you can do to know for sure that that money will ever be yours. It might all be fake. And because of that, um, you end up in a world where any money that you have, you kind of can't spend for two months because if you turned out to not get it, maybe everything breaks. And if you have a malicious actor here, then maybe you have to keep it in custody and have to freeze every transaction for two months so that they can't gain this by maliciously doing a transaction and charging back. And as soon as you even let this in a little bit to a financial system, there's a serious worry that you end up in a world in which literally every commercial transaction takes two months, even though it's only a tenth of a percent of payments that you're saying might be charged back two months later. That is actually enough to make it commercially the case that you might not be able to sustain a business model where you don't hold up everything for two months on that because of abuse, because of uncertainty. And so there's a real worry that small amounts of friction and non-determinism in a system, especially exploitable non-determinism, can ruin the fundamental behavior of an entire system. And we see that today. We see today that two years ago, tens of millions of retail traders got frozen or liquidated all at once, trading stocks on retail platforms because they made so much money that those platforms worried that maybe one of the 10 intermediaries might, two days from now, turn out to not settle a transaction that they already claimed to settle. And because of that worry, they all had to shut off all trading for all retail. And that's a terrifying place to end up in. We don't want our lives to end up like that. I think both of those factors create a really strong presumption of worry that paternalistic regulation can cause massive unfair harm to people for unfair upside. All of that, sorry, all of that I actually believe. That wasn't Steel Man. I believe all of that. <laughs> um, the Steel Man of Eric's side, which I don't think I believe, is that set of things is so strong that I think it just outweighs all benefits of regulatory oversight. Eric, a few layers to the Steel Man that uh, Sam gave you. Can you Steel Man Sam's argument? 
Yeah. Sam is in the trenches with regulators on a new bill. And he has some principles on how these protocols should work. He believes that the protocols should be immutable and that nothing should be gated or permissioned at the protocol layer. He's very worried that if that isn't defended at all costs, that'll be lost. And he is willing to sacrifice things which he believes aren't too important, like a US front end being licensed to allow people to interact with DeFi smart contracts. He doesn't want that to occur, but he would be willing to offer that up as a compromise to make sure that the protocols themselves are not permissioned. And I think he sees this as a pragmatic stand of where that compromise should or could get to. Sam, last question for you then. Could you just wrap this up, closing arguments for your case and your position? We'll throw it to Eric to close out. Yeah. So I think it all comes down to the details. I think nuance is always in the details here. And I think that today we are potentially in a massively better place than we were a year ago. I think that a year ago, we were in a place where there's nothing but acrimony between crypto and regulators. And many products were empirically not being offered in the United States because of regulatory problems. So I think it was a really big problem and huge acrimony. Over the last year, I think constructive engagement, give and take, push and pull, being willing to have nuanced positions and being willing to entertain compromise and being really open about acknowledging the benefits of other people's positions over the last year has led us to a world where, as of today, things are mostly the same in terms of what is actually doable in crypto, but where a large swath of DC is much more open to moving in a positive rather than a negative direction on the regulatory front. And I think we're very close to seeing changes that I hope will be very positive. And I don't know for sure that they will be. Um, and I don't know for sure that they will happen. But I believe that we are better off today than we were a year ago. I believe that is by a significant amount. And I believe empirically that that has come through nuanced engagement. And I think that like, you know, that doesn't mean always compromise on everything. That doesn't mean always take the most extreme stand. It, it depends case by case on the details, on the benefits, on the costs. Um, but uh, that's at its core, that is my belief. That I think is evidence that we're making progress. And I think you can see this reflected in the attitudes and beliefs of regulators and policymakers in DC. I think that they have become substantially more constructive. Close this out, Eric. What's your closing position here? Argument. Uh we, those of us in this ecosystem, this industry, have created essentially a new financial foundation for the whole world. This is a huge responsibility. And the entire purpose of this financial foundation is that all of humanity can use an open, immutable financial layer. We are separating money from politics. We are separating money from the state. And in the same way that the church was separated from the state and everyone now hails that as one of the greatest things that humanity ever did, we now too, it comes to us to do the same for money. Money is as or more important to people than religion is. We interact with it every day in all sorts of manners. And just as mathematics or language are immutable and open to the entire human race, so too should the exchange and management of money. That is the principle that makes this entire ecosystem important. 
That is the principle that justifies everything that we do. And if we lose that, it will be something that we regret for the rest of our lives because we had that opportunity. We can't protect that principle when it comes to centralized custodians, granted. But we can protect that principle when it comes to decentralized immutable finance, which we call DeFi. That line exists to the degree that we all defend it. So that's what I'm trying to do. My request to Sam and anyone else working on this bill is to exclude DeFi from its conception, not because DeFi shouldn't ever be regulated, but because it is too important to screw that up and it should not be included in a bill that contemplates how normal custodians should operate. So it's a very pragmatic request and hopefully we can have more of these discussions. Indeed, I hope we can. Sam, Eric, I wanna thank you guys again this is exactly what we needed in order to have this discussion, bring it to the light and a much better back and forth than on Twitter. You know, they can't contain these types of conversations. So we appreciate you yeah. being willing to come on very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank and you guys. thank you so much for engaging constructively. I know that I shit on you a little bit here and that's probably <laughs> too, too negative and a little bit unwarranted. And, you know, let he's within, without sin past the stone here. But, but I really do appreciate you engaging here. I appreciate you doing so constructively and that you have done that the whole time. I hear you. I really respect, you know, your arguments and I'm, I'm going to push for, for a number of them. Okay. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate that. I am, uh, I'm not the man in the, shall we say FTX arena here. <laughs> it's always easy to criticize what other people are trying to do. I think you're a good actor and I hope you hear these points and help express them in a productive way. Damn so, that, thank you for the discussion. This sounds way yeah. too friendly for a uh, crypto contentious crypto happens. conversation. This is this is not what I'm used to on crypto Twitter. <laughs> damn it! Um, action items for you, Bankless Nation. Hope you enjoyed this extra long episode. We didn't mean to go that long, but I think it was important that we did some action items. Why don't you go and read the tweet thread that started it all off? We'll include a link to that tweet thread from Sam in the show notes. It's pretty entertaining, I gotta say. So make sure you go check that out and some of the discourse that has fallen out from it. Also, read Sam's original thoughts that is posted at ftxpolicy.com. We'll include a link and read Eric's response. As always, gotta let you know, none of this has been financial advice, risks and disclaimers. It always, it never is. ETH is risky, so is crypto, so is DeFi. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west on the frontier, fighting for a better future. This journey's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on Bankless. Thanks a lot.